So this morning, um, preaching from Psalm 73, we came to the end of chapter 14 in Job a few weeks ago, and that's a major section in Job, and so we're going to take a brief break from our series in Job, and I would like to have a series in the Psalms here for a few weeks. Eventually, we'll start to be getting into some Christmas messages and eventually get back to uh, to Job. But this morning, um, direct your attention to Psalm 73 and uh, hear God's word as it comes to us from Psalm 73. A Psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Have you ever had a change of perspective about something? I know that I have. There are many things about which I think differently now than I once did. I once thought that microwave ovens were a very frivolous luxury item, but now I can fully understand why people have them. And uh, sometimes there are things that we can be quite opinionated about, and later we think, well, why did I feel that way? Why did I think that way? I used to think that uh, somebody had to be crazy to ever eat an old mud-sucking catfish, but, you know, I've tried catfish, and it's actually very good. And, uh, of course, microwaves and 
Catfish, these are only trivial things. But the point is that changes in perspective also take place in the spiritual realm. This is especially true with a new conversion. When a person has lived as an unbeliever for many years and they come to know Christ, the changes can be quite dramatic. The things that were once thought by that person to be all important are suddenly at the bottom of the list or put off of the list altogether. New life in Christ means new ways of thinking. It means new purposes, new goals. Talk about a new perspective on life for the person who comes to know Christ, especially later in life. Even those of us who have been Christians for years can find our perspective continuing to change over time in many ways. You talk to a Christian who has struggled through cancer or through the the death of a loved one, and that person will have a different perspective on life and on God than a Christian who has essentially walked the primrose path. Those who have come to understand in a personal way how terribly sinful they are will have a different perspective on forgiveness and grace in Christ than the Christian who has a superficial understanding of his sin. And sometimes we need a different perspective. Uh, Even as Christians, we're not always interpreting the events in our lives in a biblical way. Even as Christians, there are times when we need a knock on the head to get us to think correctly. I know that in my life, I've had it where I'm doing something and suddenly I realize this isn't right. What am I doing? What am I thinking? Why didn't I see this before? And it's almost like a veil is lifted from my eyes and I see a particular issue in a new light, in a biblical light, and my perspective changes. What I'm talking about really is the process of sanctification. But as startling as how dramatic some of these changes can be in our spiritual lives, even as Christians... Even as we make progress in our Christian walk, we are still messed up in so many ways, and we just don't realize it yet. And I guarantee you that some of the ways that you think, some of the ways that you do things right now in your life will be done differently uh, later through the influence of God's Word and Spirit. And as you grow spiritually, you will question some of the current ways of doing things, and as you become more like Christ, some of these changes may be even so dramatic that you wonder if you were a Christian in the past. And this process of change will happen till the day you die. And what an important reminder uh, this process is of the fact that we are saved by grace. We are saved through the work and person of the Lord Jesus Christ and not by our own works, not by our own merits. We can never be good enough to merit eternal life in heaven with the Lord. So what is the point? The point is that in the psalm before us, the writer Asaph shares with us how his perspective on life changed in a very dramatic way. And this, of course, happened to him as a believer, as one who knew the Lord and was walking with the Lord. Asaph was one of the members of the tribe of Levi. He was appointed by David to lead the worship, the worship worship music that was performed at the tent of meeting. And Boyce tells us that, quote, in time he seems to have become the leader of this group and then the father of an entire clan of temple musicians. And so we have here a psalm written by a godly man whose life was devoted to the worship of God. And we read in the opening words of this psalm the conviction of his heart when he says, truly God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. 
The psalm begins and ends with this belief that God is good to his people, that God does always what is right and proper. He's kind. He has the best interest of his people in mind. And though Asaph gives this testimony, this doesn't mean that he never struggled or wavered in believing this. In fact, this psalm is a record of how he doubted this belief because of his struggle to reconcile this belief that God is good with what he saw going on in his life. What happens again and again in our lives is what happened to Asaph, where we see or we personally experience things that seem to contradict what God says to us in his word. These circumstances become a temptation for us to doubt God, to doubt his faithfulness, his truthfulness, his love, his mercy, his promises, the fact that he's sovereign. There are so many things about God that the devil wants us to doubt. And the more that he can get us to doubt God, the more we will turn from God. And the devil would just be delighted to hear us say something like this to God, I don't want you, or I don't trust you, or I'm not willing to bank my future on what you tell me. The the devil would love it if we were to have such convictions toward God. And for Asaph, the temptation was to doubt God's goodness. The occasion of this temptation was what he saw going on in the lives of wicked people around him versus what was happening to him as one of God's children. Well, what did he see? Well, the main description of the wicked occurs in verses 4 through 11, but already at the end of verse 3, he says he saw the prosperity of the wicked. But follow along as I read verses 4 through 11, where we find this description of the prosperity of these wicked. He says, For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their, their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge of the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Do you know from experience what Asaph is talking about? Do you understand what's bothering him? He's talking about how those who have who have no regard for God, seem to do very well in this world, even better than the godly. At death, we would think the ungodly would find themselves in trouble, perhaps scared of judgment, perhaps dying in agony under the judgment of God, but Asaph sees them just glide into eternity without a struggle. Along these lines, he says their their bodies are fat and sleek, by which we understand Asaph to be saying that these wicked have good health up until last. They don't die of long, debilitating diseases. They don't struggle with poor health for months or years on end. This is only a a part of the larger picture. In general, they seem to be free of the troubles and plagues of life. Life is easy. Life is good. In terms of earthly goods, they have everything they could hope for. Boyce describes the, the wicked of this psalm this way. He says, quote, they seem to have no problems to possess near-perfect health, 
to thrive on pride and be courted by other people, even to the point of being able to, dis- to dismiss God as having any importance for their lives, end quote. Verse 12 is Asaph's summary of the life of these wicked, where he says, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. These ungodly were living the lifestyle of the rich and famous, as we would refer to it today, a carefree life marked by the enjoyment of the good things of this world. Of course, this isn't always the case, but this is what Asaph saw. I'm certain that you also have seen it. And Asaph's gut reaction was to be envious of these arrogant wicked. You know what envy is? Well, envy is when you cannot stand to see other people getting what you desire for yourself. Take notice that Asaph's struggle is due to envy. The problem is not simply that the wicked are prosperous. The problem is that Asaph thinks that he should have the lifestyle of these wicked. He is the one who should have all of the prosperity. He thinks that it stinks that the wicked get to have what he wants, what he should have. He wants the carefree life. He wants riches. Not only wants these things, but thinks it's only right that he should have them. Why should he have these things? Well, he's one of God's children. This is where we get in even, even deeper into the heart of Asaph's struggle. The problem is that in a moral universe directed by a sovereign God, we, like Asaph, expect the wicked to suffer and the godly to prosper. You can probably notice that the theme of this psalm is very relatable to Job. In a moral universe, we think the wicked should suffer, the godly should prosper, exactly what Job's friends believed. The wicked should be suffering. They ought to be experiencing God's judgment. But instead, the complete opposite is taking place. What Asaph saw was a world that seemed morally perverted, that seemed twisted. On the one hand, the ungodly, far from being judged, are living high on the hog. On the other hand, the godly, far from living a life of ease, are stricken and rebuked. So that's the wording that Asaph uses in verse 14. He says, for all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Not just stricken and rebuked, but all the day long, every morning. Notice the contrast that Asaph is laying out. He looks at himself and his own life as a believer, and his life is filled with trouble. He says he's been stricken. Have you ever felt stricken all the day long? Spurgeon, in his commentary, describes Asaph's life this way, quote, He was smitten from the moment he woke to the time he went to bed. His grief not only continued, but renewed with every opening day, end quote. I suspect that you have had days, you've had maybe even weeks and months, where you felt like nothing was going right. Uh, We know what Asaph describes when he speaks of being rebuked every morning. Joseph Carl paraphrases the psalmist this way, quote, As sure or as soon as I rise, I have a whipping. And my breakfast is bread of sorrow and the water of adversity, end quote. John Trapp writes, quote, The way to heaven is an afflicted way, a perplexed, persecuted way, crushed close together with crosses, as was the Israelites' way in the wilderness, end quote. And you see, the problem really is the contrast. Asaph's life is tough. 
while the wicked have it easy. How can this be? James Montgomery Boyce writes, We see scoundrels getting rich, utterly degenerate persons, uh, like particularly vile rock musicians or movie stars, are well paid and sought after. Even criminals get rich selling their crime stories, end quote. Spurgeon also describes the moral dilemma, quote, there were crowns for the reprobates and crosses for the elect. Strange that the saints should sigh and the sinners sing. Rest was given to the disturbers and yet peace was denied to the peacemakers. The downcast seer was in a muse and a maze. The affairs of mankind appeared to him to be in a fearful tangle. How could it be permitted by a just ruler that things should be so turned upside down and the whole course of justice dislocated? End quote. Notice where Asaph's struggle really lies in the end. His problem is only partly in an, this envious lust for the things of this world. His struggle is only partly about why, as a believer, he has to experience affliction. Ultimately, Asaph is struggling with God. Where is God? Where is his justice against wickedness? Where is his love for his people? From what Asaph is seeing and experiencing, God seems absent. It seems that there is just no way that things could be like they are if God was really in control, really the kind of God that he claims to be. And what adds to the drama and struggle is the fact that these wicked who are prospering are not even the average unbeliever. You know, they're not the, these unbelieving citizens, but people who seem to be nice religious people. No, they are arrogant, verse 3. It, they, they, they wear their pride as an ornament, which means that they're openly proud. We might say they are proud of being proud. And they are violent, verse 6. They scoff and they speak with malice, loftily threatening, threatening oppression, which means they threaten others. And they laugh at it, about it. They laugh at those who are oppressed. So they are bold in their sin. They're boasting about their evil. And furthermore, they openly and boldly speak out against God, verse 9. And while verse 10 is difficult to understand and to figure out its place here, it's generally agreed that this verse speaks of how these wicked oppress God's people. And uh, it could be that the words find no fault in them could be the waters of a full cup are drained by them. Or these waters seem to be a figure of the sorrows of God's people. Regardless of how we understand verse 10, if we, the general gist here in these verses is that these are bad, bad people, wicked to the nth degree, and shockingly, these are the people whose lives are going well. Meanwhile, we have godly Asaph who is repelled by these wicked. According to verse 13, he is a believer who has taken seriously his calling to live a righteous life of obedience and devotion to God. He says he, he kept his heart clean, that he's, he's washing his hands in innocence. He's been diligent in his attempt to live uprightly before God, and yet he is the one stricken and rebuked. It seems to be the only conclusion to be drawn from these experiences. What is the point of being godly? Why be a Christian? Why struggle to lead a holy life? What is the purpose of putting our trust in God when he is a God who blesses the ungodly and leaves his own to suffer? 
What kind of God punishes those who try to be good? Such thoughts entered the mind of Asaph. Notice with me verses 13 and 14. He says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. This was the moment of greatest temptation. This was the crucial moment in Asaph's struggle. You and I, like Asaph, we we face situations that try our faith. We have doubts. We have questions. Our faith is weak. And like Asaph, we can find ourselves tottering there on this pinnacle, these decisive moments in our lives where we are either going to go forward in our walk with the Lord, trusting in him, or we're going to backslide. And if we persist in our unbelief, continue to live according to our own wisdom, we're going to find ourselves turning away from God and the path of wisdom. And so for Asaph, this was a fork in the road moment. And notice that Asaph never did commit himself to the path of unbelief. Yes, he struggled and he had questions. The temptation was real for him to walk away from God and his faith but he never gave in to this temptation. Notice verse 2, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slept. Verse 15 tells us that during his struggle, he never said out loud what he was feeling. He he, He says, If I had said thus, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed Uh, the generation of your children. He realizes that if he had publicly shared his struggle, he could have had a very devastating effect on the faith of God's people around him. He says, if I had said these things, he came close, but he didn't say it. So what happened that led Asaph back to his faith? What happened so that Asaph left behind his doubts and his struggles Well, remember Asaph's conclusion that we find actually in verse 1. And that's, by the way, uh, something that you can keep in mind. A lot of the Psalms begin with the conclusion. (laughs) They begin with the principle, the truth that the psalmist has realized. And then he goes on to explain how he struggled with that truth. But the truth is there at the beginning. And so that's what we find here. The conclusion is really verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That's where he solidly landed after struggling for a time. And what you and I need to understand are the events, the the thought processes that led to this conclusion. So first we see that Asaph went to the right place to find wisdom for his life. Referring to verse 17, which tells us that he went into the sanctuary of God. I don't know if he went there purposely It would have been great if he went there purposely to look for answers to his specific questions and and, uh, for answers to his doubts. It's it's possible that he went there on purpose, but perhaps he simply went there by habit. But either way, it was providential that he went there because it was there that he was confronted with the truth of God. We don't know exactly what happened. Perhaps he heard the word of God as it was expounded by a priest So that there in the sanctuary of the Lord, he heard God speak from his word. Again, to quote from James Montgomery Boyce, he writes of how, quote, another teacher has suggested that Asaph saw the the altar upon which a fire was already burning and where the offerings for sin were consumed. The death of the sacrificial animals symbolized death as the end result of sin. And the fire could have reminded Asaph 
of this judgment, end quote. Whether it was the word preached or the truth of God as revealed in the sacrificial system, and I would have wanted to add to that, that not only did he see what sin deserves in judgment, but of course the sacrificial system is also designed to point to the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the sacrifice offered for the sins of, of God's people. But however it happened, whether it was through hearing the word as it was expounded by a priest or the truth of God as, as it was revealed visibly in that sacrificial system, Asaph learned a simple truth that cleared up the whole mess for him. Verse 17 tells us that there in the sanctuary he discerned their end. That is, he came to understand the final destiny of the wicked. What happens to them in the end? He came to see everything from God's perspective rather than from his limited, sinful, and earthly perspective. His new perspective became the perspective of God and eternity. It's in verses 18 through 26 that we find Asaph describing his new perspective, and he touches on four main areas of thought. At first, he came to understand that the good life of the wicked is a very temporary life. It's a very temporary life. Notice verses 18 through 20. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you shall despise them as phantoms. So the wicked seem secure. Their life seems wonderful. But how wonderful is a life that is soon swept away and replaced with the terrors of hell? This earthly life of prosperity is soon gone. So how foolish to envy the life of someone who ends up in hell. And second, Asaph came to understand himself better through this whole process. Notice verses 21 and 22. When my heart was embittered, when I was pricked or irritated, might, we might translate it there. Uh, in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. He came to realize how foolish, how ignorant he was in questioning God's ways. At the time he was involved in the struggle, he surely imagined himself to be wise. He imagined his questions to be bulletproof, but now he sees himself differently. He has a new perspective on himself as a beast. He has been acting like an animal, like he, as though he has no real understanding of anything and certainly no real awareness of God. And he grieves in repentance over how foolish he has been. And then third, Asaph came to understand anew God's love for his people. He understood that as brutish and ignorant as he had been, God had never abandoned him. Verses 23 and 24, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. And he wrote these words right after his words of repentance in verses 21 and 22 about how brutish and ignorant he was. And so do you see how what gave Asaph hope was the gospel? Asaph understood that despite his foolishness, God would be with him and save him. He took hope in God's forgiveness of sin. Asaph knows the God that we know, a God who never leaves us, who never forsakes us despite our sin. As sinful as we are, he doesn't hold our sins against us. <coughs> and we can be so foolish 
so ready to cast God away. I mean, so ready to judge him for wrongdoing and, and so prideful to think that we know things better than he does, and yet God is never ready to cast us away. This is because of the atoning work of Christ for us. He has satisfied the justice of God against our sins. He has sealed our salvation. There's to be no doubt that when you trust in Christ as your Savior, God is going to guide you through life according to his all-wise, all-gracious plan until you finally are ushered one day into the glory of his presence. So Asaph gained a whole new perspective. He was reoriented in his thinking by the gospel. And fourth, Asaph learned that true blessing is not a life of ease here on earth. True blessing is knowing God. Notice verses 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. When Asaph was envious of the wicked, it was only because he thought that they had things that were more valuable than the things that he had. He thought that these earthly things they had were so valuable. But now he realizes that he had it all wrong. In God, he has everything that he could possibly need and want. People of God, we need to apply these words to our lives. Let us not envy the lives of the ungodly, even if these are lives of ease and earthly pleasure, do not adopt the values of the world about what they think is valuable and worthwhile. Look to God to meet your deepest needs. Nurture your relationship with him. Seek the Lord. Remember the verse, another verse in the Psalms, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. People of God, do not lose sight of the fact that we are by nature brutish and ignorant. It's easy for us to proudly think that we have things figured out, but let us always remember that as soon as we begin to trust our own judgments on things, we are going to be all mixed up. We're going to have the wrong perspective. So what's the solution? How do we get the right perspective? Well, that's the only way is to go to the sanctuary of God. To think clearly and properly about ourselves and about life, we need God's word. We need God to speak to us. It's God's word that has the wisdom that we need. Do not neglect the word of God or you will end up mixed up. You will end up envious. You will end up, as the psalmist here described himself, embittered. Where you look around and you think, God's against me. You'll become pricked in heart, irritated by what you see going on and not trusting in God as you ought. People of God, as to this issue of the prosperity of the wicked and the suffering of God's people, take into account the end. The end is all important. What happens in the end tells us who is really loved by God and who isn't. Verse 27, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. It's the final destiny of people that ought to guide your understanding of what's really going on in this life. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. 
It's good to be rebuked when the Lord disciplines us as a way to draw us nearer to him. It's good to be stricken if suffering leads us not to put our hopes and dreams in the things of this world. What is good is what pushes us toward God and to the life that he gives those who trust him. What is bad, what ought to be hated, is whatever would lead us away from God and onto the path of destruction. This gives a whole new perspective on earthly wealth, doesn't it? It's not all that it's cracked up to be. It's not necessarily a blessing. That needs to be understood very clearly. The things that Asaph is describing going on in the lives of these wicked, are these things really a blessing? They appear to be a blessing. They are certainly an experience of the good things that God gives even unbelievers in, in, in this creation as part of life here on earth. But are they being blessed? It can be very easily pointed out that what they were experiencing was ultimately the curse of God. Because as they stand before God one day and have to give an account of themselves, they are going to be condemned all the more for all of these good things that they experienced, but yet would not give credit to God. Those things then become an occasion actually for more judgment. What you must know is that if you trust Christ, you are loved. You are forgiven of your sin, and you will be brought to glory. And in the meantime, life may not be easy, but there is comfort in knowing that in Christ, you're never, ever going to be under God's curse. And see, that's the important thing we also need to remember, that we are being blessed even when we are being stricken and rebuked. We get the blessing part mixed up. We think the blessing is experiencing the good things of this life, when really, in Asaph's case, the blessing is being stricken and rebuked as he is brought closer to the Lord. The cross of Christ is what assures us that we will never be under the curse of sin. So let the cross of Christ be a constant reminder of what Jesus did to take all of the wrath of God that was against your sin upon himself. So God does have a plan for you, child of God. It is not a plan to harm you, but a plan to bless you. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would be pleased to give us the right perspective on our lives when things don't seem to be going the right way. We confess that at times we doubt your sovereignty and faithfulness and love as we see the prosperity of the wicked. May may, may truth, the truth of your word, fill our minds. Help us to see the end of the wicked is is judgment, and our end as your beloved people is salvation with you in heaven. May our testimony always be that you are good to us, always and in all things. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.